0: Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycampcom HelpingFriendly to learn more.
1: Hi, I'm Ben Sawyer and I'm the co-host of the Road to Now podcast on the Osiris Podcast Network. Each week, my partner Bob Crawford and I speak with experts to discover how history has shaped the politics, culture, and economy of the world we inhabit. I'm a history professor and stand-up comic, and Bob is a founding member of the Avett Brothers with a deep knowledge of history and theology. Together, we work to bring history to the public in a way that is informative, accessible, and, we hope, entertaining. You can find the Road to Now podcast anywhere you get this Osiris podcast, or on our website at
2: www.theroadtonow.com. That's
1: www.theroadtonow.com. We hope you'll join us on the road, and that you thoroughly enjoy this episode of our fellow Osiris podcasts.
0: Hey everybody, it's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 163. I'm here with Matt. What up, Matt? Hey, man. Um, Matt, I have Nats fever. Do you have Nats fever? I do not have Nats fever. I got regular fever too. Do you have that?
1: No, I do not have that. So I'm <laughs> fever free. <laughs> fever
0: free. Um, exciting times in D.C. for for the sports, the sports people who are not Philadelphia fans. Yep.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I said... If the uh as of when we're recording this, the, the Nats don't know who they're gonna play in the World Series. Um, I offered that if it was the Yankees, I could probably support my friends who are Nats fans. I'll put it that mm-hmm. way. But uh yeah, my my interdivision and uh Philly sports toughness prevents me from ever going all in on rooting for the Nats, and that's just the way it is. That's my life.
0: Hey man, you know what Trump says. Don't be a tough guy. Um so all right. So Matt, the the fish news, man, there's so much going on. I feel like since the last time we talked, seven more uh projects have been announced.
1: The first and foremost of which is Oysterhead, which is yeah. freaking awesome. And I think um I've had the number of times that I've had conversations with people in the past couple of years where it's like, man, if like we get one thing to happen, it would be an Oysterhead reunion and it seemed to come out of nowhere. Like Vita Blue, we knew for a while that they had been getting together and recording and stuff and Oysterhead, it just seemed like there was like no chance of that happening and it just came out of nowhere, which is awesome.
0: Why do you think, um, it, it was so like, there were no leaks, there were no like rumors. It was just like, suddenly it was there. Um, why do you think people are so excited for it? I think it'll be cool. I remember, I think maybe I saw them once. Um, is it because of the uniqueness of the combination of musicians. Is there something that you think is like particularly special about this?
1: Well, they're a great band, obviously, you know, the musicians that are involved. Um, And I think it's in terms of side projects, it's probably the side project. That's the biggest departure from fish. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the sound is a lot different. Um, Less brings a, a certain brand of kind of evilness to the sound, which is sort of the antithesis of this happy, joyous fish experience. Um, and I think, you know, it's also the side project that we, I guess now that Vita Blue's back, you know, we haven't heard from Oysterhead in so long. Um, I think people just, you know, in my mind, they were done and, and nothing was ever going to happen with that band again. And so, uh, I'm excited to see what happens. I don't know if they're going to record an album or just play the old stuff or whatever, but, uh, I'm on board for whatever happens.
0: And we just heard that Trey Band and Oysterhead will be headlining the Sweetwater 420 Fest next spring. Um, We need to get ourselves there. We need to figure that out. It's a nice festival, downtown Atlanta. It's a lot of fun. So let's go.
1: Yeah, there was, I think I saw a couple of different lists floating around of maybe some festival dates and stuff like that. So we'll see what happens. Um, The other thing I, I was thinking is that, you know, I think Trey having had more free time to just focus on his career in the past couple of years, since he's been an empty nester. Um, it seems like he's gotten into this routine of doing side project tours right before fish stuff. Um, mm. So he winds up coming in really hot with his playing, which is great. So, um, you know, I mean, this is going to be, these Colorado dates are going to be right before Mexico. Um, maybe we'll see something in the summer before the proper fish tour, but um, all really good. So for you, like how does oyster head rank in, terms of the uh the side projects
0: i mean i think it's it was so yeah like you said different but it was also like the the peak of evil fish you know so it was it was a continuation but even more like psychedelic and crazy you know um based on what we were hearing you know in 99 2000 but i think it's um really cool i mean Stuart copeland is awesome and hearing been reading about his reflections on Oysterhead over the years it seemed like that was pretty memorable for him and then you know when they played like they just it was so weird and they had their they had the matterhorn and the you know it was just fucking bizarre you know which is i think really fun
1: yeah yeah for sure so
0: um on the on the opposite side of the spectrum from the evil is the the current uh, Trey Acoustic Tour, which I think is probably basically the exact opposite. Um, although he does get into some loops and some pretty interesting effects, you know, now and then. But um, that's going on right now and, and will continue through the end of the month. I'm going to actually get to go to Carnegie Hall in a couple of weeks and see one of those last shows. And the, the storytelling and the kind of it feels like they've set a precedent that like Trey's going to do something, you know, re- reveal a new story or something at every show.
1: Yeah, there's already been some cool nuggets of info about uh, the mime field at Curveball and some other stuff like that. So that I think, you know, especially having seen that one show, the acoustic show, we've well, seen them a couple of times, but I, I saw that acoustic show at the Sixth and I Synagogue. And that was one of the highlights of the night, just hearing some of those awesome stories.
0: Yeah, really cool. Um, the Between Me and My Mind documentary, of course, is now is now out, I think, as of when when this is uh this episode will come out we have more tours there's tab winter tour mike gordon band winter tour there's mexico in february i mean there's a lot of fish related music to see over the next several months i mean if you you can see something basically every month um if oysterhead comes through april like you could basically see a fish project every month of the year in 2020 so far
1: Yep. If you're willing to travel, uh, you can, yeah. you could tra- probably hit them all. So, um, I know I'm not fortunate enough to be able to do that, Um uh, no. time schedules and stuff like that, but, <laughs>
0: no. uh, yeah, or but, at least fresh listening on the app at, yeah. at most yeah. times.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's the thing we talk about when fish is on tour or whatever, it, it's almost like a sports season and you get to follow on every day. And this is like, you know, extending baseball season to year round or something like that. So, um, I'm, I'm g- good with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And then, you know, we get the archival releases like the 113095, which we covered in our last episode on top of all this new music. So it's interesting to look at the the live fish app and see how much of it is a non-fish and how much of it B is like new, you know, even just since the Dick's um, shows, there's like 10 or 15 new things you can listen to already. Yep. Which is really cool. Yeah. Um, speaking of listening, Matt, do you do a lot of listening to podcasts?
1: Uh, I've listened to a few in my time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you Did you listen to the uh, Female Centrics interview about the 12 tribes?
1: You know, I'll be completely honest with you. I tried to. And uh, I say that not because of anything related to what uh, Donnie B did or anything like that. But um, it was a difficult listen. And I don't know about you, but ever since I've been a parent, anytime I encounter any news about Children being mistreated—it's—it's uh, it's really hard for me to digest. And I made it about halfway through that episode, and I had to turn it off. I'm, I'm hoping to to reapproach it again in a couple days with a clear head, but it's a it's a really serious and, and tough thing to hear.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's like a little bit of the in in our Cyrus uh, newsletter we talked about like the expose because it was the first time this woman Kate talked about it but that's that's making it a little bit more sensationalized it's like it's a disturbing and and really intense listen and and the woman Kate she just it's amazing how um clear-headed she seems in like recounting all this stuff and and publicly for the first time but just like going through all this stuff as if like she was just kind of reliving it which must be really difficult but really crazy because those like people have seen that bus on lot. Right. So it's like, it is part of the community.
1: Yeah. And I didn't, I, I, I really didn't know that much about the 12 tribes um, before this, other than, you know, at one of my first shows, somebody saying, Hey, don't ever go on that bus. And I just figured it was like some hippy dippy stuff. I had no idea what was going on there. And um, really, you know, my hats off to Kate for, for being able to share that in in a public forum and, and use her story to, to hopefully enlighten other people as well.
0: Yeah, totally. It's it's definitely worth a listen, and I understand why. You know, hopefully, you can go back to it. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, Inside Out with Turner and Seth they've uh, they spent a lot of time thinking about sort of the mental health, you know, crisis. I think in in well in America for sure, but then in music specifically, and they have a new episode where they talk to Andrews Osborne and Andy Frasco and and talk about talk about that stuff. So if you're into that, um, obviously, you can listen to all this stuff now on our new. Um, website at OsirisPod.com. So check it out. Um, I, I guess those were two um, kind of heavy topics, but... You know, there's there's plenty of entertaining stuff
1: too. <laughs> the th- the th- before we move on, the third one I will add, if we're talking about heavy topics, um, also that we talked about the tapes archive a couple times. They've had some really cool interviews. Um, the one that came out uh, this past week uh, was an interview with Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon, and it was recorded about a month before he died. And it really, it's a great listen. He's it's he's very like you'd think for somebody who died of a heroin overdose, maybe he was a mess, but he's very like coherent and with it and does a great job of talking about what was their new album at the time soup but it's also really sad because he does talk about his baby daughter being only eight weeks old and plans for the future and stuff so um if you're a a blind melon fan and you you probably should be if you're a fish fan um definitely go and check that out
0: yeah, crazy timing. Um, that podcast continues to deliver great interviews at really interesting times. You know, um, the Trey one that we shared was like a, a few days or a week before the the Murat Jin show, and those are, you know, that was a happier a happier coincidence of dates than the the Shannon Hoon one. But really cool like snapshots in time. So sure, thanks for bringing that up. I also want to talk quickly about the four part series that Jesse Jarnow did for Relics about Ghosts of the Forest really good read. Um, part four came out. Um, I think the day before this, this podcast will come out and all four of the pieces are really interesting look behind the scenes of of the music and how the music was made and, and performed on an ongoing basis, but also the production and, um, interviews with, with all the band members and, um, Abigail Holmes and, Um, who's the woman who, who did the set design. And I learned a lot from reading it and Jesse did a great job pulling this all together. And, uh, back in the spring, I did a medium post about, uh, what I thought a lot of the ghosts of the forest songs meant. And this, uh, four part series, there were like little snippets throughout where Trey talked about some of the songs and what they meant. So I, I was, um, proven right in a couple instances and proven wrong a lot, which is, which is normal. Um, so anyway, check it out. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's a four part series by Jesse um called the story of the ghosts or how to build a forest so we'll link to that. All right, so this episode we are going to talk about an album what is it called, Matt?
1: Uh, we're talking about Lawn Boy today. This is our third episode in a series of uh, backtracking episodes about the band's studio albums. We talk so much about the live stuff that it's cool to kind of um, refocus on the studio albums and in particularly these early ones that kind of put them on the map.
0: Yeah, and this one is, um, I don't know, I feel like I maybe I went backwards and I would like listen to Lawn Boy a lot before I went back to Junta, but this to me is like, you know, a a really, really important album in my fish evolution. This may have been the first album that I went to after, you know, hearing my first tape or something. Um, and it's one of those albums where like, it's all, every note is sort of like crystallized in my brain. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I, um, this has a, a fond place in my heart. Um, I don't think I ever owned a copy of this until the, um, vinyl edition came out. Uh, about six years ago, but I had a friend when I was younger, when I was first getting into the band who had it. And uh, he was one of only like a couple of CDs that he he had in his car. And we worked together uh, one or two summers in a row. And we used to just drive around listening to this album on repeat uh, constantly. So um, same thing. Every note is kind of like ingrained in my brain.
0: That's really cool. And it was, it was, The second, you know, official studio album um, released September 21st, 1990. And it's interesting because it was then released two years later, uh, reissued, I guess, by Electra. And that that was after they signed the deal with Electra, right? So they reissued it um, as part of like the deal that started that long, longer run with Electra.
1: Yeah. um, At that time, Bob Ludwig uh, mastered uh, this and Junta, and they both came out uh, in 1992.
0: Cool. And I think, did you find that fact about the recording about this?
1: Well, yeah. So um, some of the songs, I don't think it was the whole album, but um, at least some of the songs uh, were funded by the band winning a battle of the bands uh, in Burlington in uh, the spring of 1989. They went into Archer Studios in Winooski and um, spent May through December of 1989 recording uh, this album, which is especially for a young band um, out and trying to play a ton of gigs and stuff like that, like they were at the time, uh, is quite a bit of time to spend. Spend on <laughs> um, on an album, yeah. it, when you look at this, I think we all kind of look at the the songs as like. Part of the classic canon of fish material, um, but a lot of the tunes were very new at that time. And you, a lot of times when you, we talk about second albums, you talk about the sophomore slump, this thing where um, bands have years to come up with the material for their first record and then months to come up with the material for their second record. Um, but I think all the preparation and live playing they were they were doing at the time led to really with with Junta and then between you know really the first four or five albums kind of laying the bass for all of the classic fish material so this is a really critical album in their career
0: yeah and i think the um a lot of the the music of course is is like you said kind of foundational to the to the fish repertoire and then i think this is when a lot of tom's work started coming in um coming in more frequently and then obviously increased over the years so the 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 marrying of the lyrics and the and the music in ways that we would come to appreciate later, you know, are sort of, uh, born here.
1: Yep. Absolutely. And
0: so in 1990, so there was that, the famous, you know, paradise show in Boston in 89 and the fish was obviously hitting some, hitting some strides, but, um, 1990, I think is when they started really touring and, and really like putting on a heavy schedule on the road they they did that fall or sorry that spring they did those first shows in atlanta where they played with colonel bruce and you know did like basically an entire um national tour like that whole year and and that fall i think is when things started to really pick up and we started to hear like you know really kind of amazing amazing evolution so this is just cool that this came out like right at that time when they were started to tour a lot. And also just like the music was really coming together in a different way. 1990 to me is often when I think about the evolution of fish, it's often like a year where I feel like things started to really change.
1: Yeah. It was the year they, you know, left the Northeast and started nationally touring, like you said. And it feels like this album was kind of a, and the material at least was kind of a catapult, um, to, to getting that done.
0: No pun intended. (laughs)
1: Uh, maybe slightly um so so for people who have
0: record players matt this was released um the record was released 2013 do you own it i do and what what was the what was the deal with that
1: uh well the deal is it's uh as with junta it's awesome um so it was uh cut directly from the analog master um no digital steps here and it was done of course by chris bellman who's done all of these um Uh, records in the Reissue series. Um, It sounds fantastic. Uh, And this is another one I mentioned, I think on the Junta episode, that um, these first two, they also at the same time released high-resolution digital versions, which they haven't done with any of the subsequent uh, records, and I wish they would do, because um, when I'm not... You know, in the mood to fire up the the tube amp and all that kind of stuff, and I just want to put something on. these are great sounding uh, recordings to put on um and and once again, you wouldn't think that for a band so early in their career and making uh, a non major label record in like a regional studio that they would put something together that's engineered so well. but it really is a fantastic sounding record,
0: yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Um, and I, I hope they continue doing that with that, with everything. Just release really awesome sounding stuff all the time, please, Fish, um, which they basically do. So Matt, let's get into the album a little bit. So the I, I don't know if I would have been able to put my finger on the squirming coil as the opening track of Lawn Boy before going back for this listening exercise, um, just because it just—I don't know. It, it, it like when I played it, I was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot this is the first
1: track." Well, yeah, it's strange because you usually associate "Squirming Coil" with being a set closer uh, or an encore song, and it opens up the record here. Um, although I looked uh, at the stats, and it's actually only been the set closer or encore about half the times that it's been played, um, mostly more recently.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was definitely more of a first set song in the earlier years, I think, but. This album version is it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I wanted to just start with a comment from Jonathan, who's traveling and can't be here. He said, Lawn Boy is my favorite fish album. Basically the squirming coil, because of the thousand times I listen to that record, it's perfect music in my brain, and no amount of convincing will ever dissuade me. So that's all. That's all that's what Jonathan has to say about it. Matt, do you what do you think about the the opening track here?
1: It's great. Um, you know, the the placement, it reminds me when they one of the, the only times recently where they did this as an opener um, in Telluride the second night, uh, and they came out a little bit later than they had the first night, and they um, opened up with the line The Squirming Coil of Sunset just as the sun was setting between the mountains uh, off to the west at the f- the f- further end of uh, the town of Telluride, which is a, just a really beautiful experience that I'll, I'll always remember. Um, this is a really cool version of it. Um, you don't have uh, Paige's outro solo the way that you do live. Um, so I think it 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 takes on a little bit of a different tone. It doesn't have quite the weight that it does usually for me in live versions. Um, mm-hmm. I like that the pages solo live gives you a time for everybody to just sort of exhale and be quiet and kind of get on the same page um, usually as a wind down at, at the end of a set. Um, the other thing that I noticed here, and this will come up a couple different versions, a couple different times on different songs, the way that Trey's guitar was recorded, it sounds like they were simultaneously recording not only his amp, but also just like directly recording um, his guitar and the, the the strings on his guitar and what he was picking. Because um, you get this really amazing classic clean Trey tone, but also the kind of attack that you get from the pick hitting the strings. So it's almost like you have an acoustic and electric guitar playing at the same time um i don't recall them doing that on any albums before or after but it's it's part of the unique sound of lawn boy i think
0: So in the in the part where it sounds like acoustic guitar, is it not actually acoustic, or are there just portions of this song that are acoustic?
1: There may be some acoustic guitar layered in there. It's it's hard for me to say, but um, yeah. I, I was trying to figure out if you know they overdubbed an acoustic and electric guitar. That's possible, but it's so precise, the playing at exactly yeah. the same time, that it does sound to me like it's probably from the same performance and just recorded the way that I, I mentioned a second ago. But it could yeah. be. There is, and there is a lot of acoustic guitar throughout the album as well. But a couple of these that have sort of jazzy tray parts, um, guitar parts, uh, you'll, you'll hear the same kind of tone.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting because that to me, I, I heard acoustic guitar, but I think I just that's like my ears <laughs> versus yours. I was like, oh, cool, acoustic guitar. It's just so different of a sound from what you'd hear live. I think the the point about Page and the piano, the piano in this on the studio version is just really it works really well with that with that guitar like effect. You know, it just it's a really good combo. Um, and although you don't get the extended solo, you do get like amazing piano work from Page and. And I would just say that maybe the second second best Mike vocals um, <laughs> next to next to Emotional Rescue um, <laughs> is just wow. I, I every time I hear the album version, I'm like, holy shit! I can't believe he did that.
1: Yeah. You don't hear that anymore. Uh, no. but it's, and that's, I think that's one of the other things that like the song sounds a little bit goofier on the record because of that. Um, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, it's always surprises me too when I hear it.
0: Like, wow, that's really, really high pitch. Um, but great, great opening track and, and maybe they should just, it actually would be a good way to open shows more frequently. I think just like a piano solo to get into the, get into the show, you know?
1: Yeah. Open a tour with it. Open a tour with it.
0: All right, so then we get into Reba, which I think you know obviously is a seminal, seminal tune. Um, the the solo, which we can get into later. That's like the part that I just you know is sort of burned into my my brain. But um, it's you know they 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 weren't getting less fishy here with in terms of being goofy and and some nonsensical lyrics with some you know, goofball shit thrown in. It's like, they were just trying to make their own music. They weren't trying to, to impress anyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of, it's one of my favorite fish tunes. And it's one of those, like, it, along with you and Joe and myself and, and a couple of other songs, it really is like the full breadth of what fish does. Um, you know, the intricate composition, um, incredible improv, uh, you know, obviously masterful guitar playing. Um, but with very, very goofy lyrics that you can kind of piece into meaning something, but it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. Um, and the, uh, the recorded version, I, I like a lot in the, uh, on this album. Um, it's a little slower than they played it live early on. Um, but it's, it's great. Um, I, one of the things I like about it is that you can actually understand the, the, the lyrics and how difficult they are to sing when they s- sing them faster as well. I can't sing them. Can you?
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, even no, for no. me to just say, take it peek at the cheetah Reba I
2: can't
0: (laughs) yeah you gotta kind of I mean you can't try to you know you gotta lower your standards a little bit and kind of like cut cut some corners um but the so I was thinking about the solo and I don't know if you want to talk more about the composed part but the solo to me this was kind of a lot of this guitar playing on on Junto was was with the exception of the live tracks um was all pretty scripted and composed this is like our first kind of Open tray solo of uh on a fish album, right? I mean, maybe it was planned, but it doesn't feel like it.
1: Yeah, it could be, uh, it could be that it might maybe it's a comp from a couple different takes, uh, that he did, hmm. but it has a it has a f- certainly live feel to it. Um, and it's it, perfect, it, it really is amazing. And and I think Reba and the um you know antelope which we'll talk about a little bit later these are versions where you actually can sit down and listen to the studio record and get a very clear picture of what they do it live with it live because they, they give it the space to breathe and the dynamic build from soft to loud that um are what you know make these songs uh so amazing
0: yeah so going back to this is one of your favorite songs was this like a good good reminder of the origin of the song
1: yeah, um you know I I don't listen to this album incredibly regularly but it is great to kind of reset and look at um the the perfection of the composed uh section in in particular. Um there's a section in here which I, I was funny I had all these notes about this being one of Trey's classic fugues and um, was reminded via a conversation on social media this week. Thanks. uh, Shout out to Jake Cohen, uh, who a lot of, you know, smooth, eternal sound on Twitter. He's also um, been working with us a little bit on the after midnight project and um, reminded me of this debate that I had forgotten about, uh, from a long time ago whether this is a fugue or a canon um and it's without getting into crazy musicologist um detail or theory stuff it's it's actually a, a canon i believe um some of the other stuff like ass festival and i, I think the beginning of foam are fugues they're, they're like trey's classic atonal fugues um but this part is more like um like row 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 your boat uh, how yeah. like you would a lot of people would call it singing in a round where w- one person does it. And then like a measure later, the next person starts the same exact thing and it sort of magically lines up. Another really great example of that is if you know the song Brighton Rock by Queen, Um, there's a place in the live versions of that where Brian May would play by himself uh, with an echoplex on his guitar, so there'd be three guitars, but it, two of them are delays of what he was playing, and he would play these uh, ascending and descending lines that magically line up at certain points and create these really cool-sounding chords and stuff. This is what um, Trey and Paige are doing here. They're playing the exact same uh, part, uh, like a measure apart, um, and I I think, if I looked at the entire Fish catalog, that section of Reba uh, is pretty, probably the most difficult for them to play um it's because it's just all over the place there's no easy patterns to figure out um it's it's atonal so there's parts that line up to create dissonance instead of nice harmonies that you could attach yourself to and have kind of landing islands um but and, and and at the same time what mike and fishman are doing in the background is not uh, simple either. So, um, I've that's why this has one, been one of my favorite songs since I first started listening to Fish. Just listen you know, listening to that section and just having my mind blown by how amazing a the composition is, but b you know that those guys can actually play something like this. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and the fact that they you know at this time and and for decades after could play it live. I mean, at this point, it, you know. When you hear it live, like the, the composed part is a different experience than it used to be, but there were times in the in the nineties, up to the late nineties, where like the entire composed section live was perfect.
1: Yeah. Which and is a fast. little bit different
0: obviously. Yeah, different than putting it together on an album. So um amazing My sweet one. Um, shout, shout out to Jonathan. He's a he's a bluegrass fan, especially Fish Bluegrass. So here, here we are.
1: Yeah, this is, I guess, the first example of Fish Bluegrass on record. Um, it's surprising to me. I completely forgot until I dug out the record and was looking at the liner notes that Fishman wrote this song. I always think of it as a mic song um Trey and Mike always stand out as kind of like the bluegrass cats but um it's a it's a Fishman composition which is I guess uh why it's so kind of goofy too
0: (laughs) it's a good one it's like the the lyrics you know it's classic classic um they were not like again like (laughs) the first three tracks of this are just man it's so great how much they were just trying to create the album they wanted to create you know what I mean um Which, just thinking about the evolution of the band, they just, they didn't really worry about what they were, they weren't trying to make a record for anybody else than themselves. And I think My Sweet One is a really good um, (laughs) backing point to that.
1: Yeah, and it's, thinking back to 1992, this would have been just a very odd song to come out from any band, you know, let alone a kind of a rock band. Um, There wasn't a lot of cross-pollination, that kind of stuff. Uh, back then um, which by the way there's a you know there's a banjo solo in the middle and there's no credit on the record so I've got to assume that that's Mike playing that mm. um, but we ha- don't really have any way to tell
0: huh all right well just assume it's Mike um, assume it. and next Matt is <laughs> split, split open, open and melt Mel. <laughs> um, yeah like this is um not yeah, I don't know. The, I don't, I'm not sure what to say about the album version of this. It's just this song is, is again, one of the more, to me at least, unique fish songs. And besides just like that, it gets really awesomely cool and, and weird live. Um, it's a pretty unique song to me in terms of just like the structure and the, I don't know, even the, the chords and everything. It's like it seems like a very different kind of um, animal than most fish songs. Is that do you think that's fair?
1: It's, yeah, I mean, it's unique composition. It's um, got some really cool things like the time signature, uh, which a lot of people, if you've counted this out, um, it's three bars of 8-8 uh, eight, eight, followed by a bar of 9-8, um, which is why if you try to dance to it when the band plays that uh, during the the jam mm-hmm. it throws you off it's a good way to spot noobs at shows um, but uh the, the thing about this version it's so much different than they would do live it's got the horn parts which of course the giant country horns played on the um those horn tours in in the early 90s uh you know 91 and 94 um there's a, a female singer which I, another thing that i always forget about until i listen to this christine lynch uh who actually mm-hmm. sings the chorus um and because of All of that and some of the sound effects that are going on, um, it, it sounds very kind of deviant. It's almost, we were talking about Evil Fish earlier. This is like early Evil Fish. But then when they played it live, it turned into more of just like the typical like shred fest, soaring solos, you know, edge of your seat kind of thing for a while until the late 90s when they found new ways to make it evil during the jam. Um, so you don't have the like the chaotic horn parts or anything like that, but like during the jam, they would just get so, and they still do, they get can get very uncomfortable, very dissonant, um, just sort of grinding through the, the jam. Um, so so it's cool. I, I guess they've always probably seen it as sort of like a you know an evil side of the coin.
0: Yeah and I think was um a song that that was obviously you know created by Trey um, music and lyrics and I think um had been played since uh, early 89 so it was something they brought brought to this album that had already had already been out in the world um there's a little bit of a I think story about um, at least on the fish.net history about this being something that Trey thought had like a lot of potential but they were continuing to figure out how to maximize that potential live. Um, And it's, it appeared a lot. And then in 92, when they started introducing a lot more of the rift tunes, it sort of became less frequent. And there's the famous uh, version for 2193 from Columbus, which, uh, you know, part of that jam appears on demand um, on hoist, but the, that version like kind of restarted, the whole potential for the for the song and i think since then you know it had like taken on an even more evil improvisational potential you know what i mean that was like one of the first times it really hit that that part and then i think they continued to expand it from there it's a it's a it's a it's an intense song still still to this day even you know 40 year old people who have been seeing fish for a long time it can get get pretty crazy
1: yeah for sure they had
0: a 20, 12 30 18, I think was the last real real notable version that was like you know 20 minutes long um it's such a cool song because it does once in a while just like there's this, the version from um Saratoga in 2013 set closer 7 6, 2013 like one of my favorites ever but man it's just wild so it's cool I think people enjoy hearing this song live because you can just like it has the potential to just get way out of hand which is always fun right
1: Yeah, this one always makes me think of um, the second night of Red Rocks 2009 when a a rainstorm rolled in while they were playing it and the wind got so uh, intense that the light rig was swinging back and forth over the band and they (laughs) eventually got flagged and and told to come off the stage and... um, I've told the story about it, you know, that led to a really epic second set that night, but that every time I hear this song in my mind, that's what I see is the band on stage at Red Rocks with the wind and the rain and, you know, just this sort of chaotic sound uh, coming from the stage.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Such a great, such a great song. Okay. Then the O'Keepa ceremony is next. Um, Not, you know, not the O'Keepa ceremony that led to Union Federal and other, other tracks, but similar, similar name, but much shorter.
1: Yeah, little uh, sliver of composition from Trey. Um, I, I This one in my mind is always kind of like paired up with All Things Reconsidered. Just mm-hmm. like a, a short little piece that he wrote. Doesn't get played live a ton. Um, actually had like, it's had several gaps where it hasn't been played for a couple years um, throughout their history. These days tends to go before Susie Greenberg, but in the past has been used as a lead-in to You Enjoy Myself and, and lots of other things. Um, when I listen back to this one, this, so this is the second example where you hear that uh, m- kind of blended electric and acoustic tone from Trey again. So once again, the really nice clean tone from, uh, from his amp, but then also paired with this just like sharp attack of a pick against a string getting mixed in there. Um, this is another one that like, I feel like it's you can give somebody a really good idea of what the sound of fish is like by hearing this. Um, because even though the whole guitar part is composed, it has a very loose feeling to it almost in a, like it's, I would just describe it almost like new Orleans jazz where like, you know, new Orleans jazz players, like they have a melody that they're all sort of playing around so that it's kind of like, it's, it's it's sort of like referenced um, and maybe one instrument is playing it, but lots of other instruments, clarinets and stuff are sort of dancing around it. So it gives you this underbed of like chaos while one instrument is taking the lead. And that's kind of what happens here is um, the band and what they're playing under Trey seems sort of like loose and haphazard and they're just kind of like almost like warming up towards a song or something like that. But when in fact, it's actually like a very tightly scripted piece of music.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's like you said, they, it's not really played very frequently, like, you know, once a year, every, every few years actually at this point, but um, in some of those nineties versions, the, the transitions into, you know, Susie and ACDC Bag and even David Bowie are really cool. My favorite is the transition into ACDC Bag from, from Okipa. I think that's just like a, I think that was on a lot of early tapes that I had. That's what I always think of. But um, yeah, nice little interlude here that goes into what you wouldn't expect to hear live, um, transition into bathtub gin. This is, yeah, this bathtub gin is like, reminds me that bathtub gin was not always, but it's not always what it is now.
1: It it wasn't, and this is, um, I mean, A, we know, like, a lot of those early versions live, they didn't jam as much. The horn versions in particular stuck very close to the album and kind of, like, ending on a dime after the um, uh, the sort of scat singing section that they all do. Um, But this is, I I don't know, I mean, like, if you did, if I wasn't aware of all of the amazing live versions of Bathtub Gin, and this is the Mm -hmm. only version of this (laughs) song I'd ever heard, I could see this being like my least favorite song on the album um it's like it's got a lot of really weird sound effects and like almost like ASMR kind of stuff going on and the it, like there's that gong that comes in at one point and it's interesting but it's just it's very very like goofy goofy fish. Which once again, if you like, forget about like you know the Great Went version or something like that, you might just think it's kind of like a throwaway track. When in fact, they kind of adapted it into one of their masterpieces.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. And and this again was played you know starting in '89. And if you listen to those early '89 versions, they're they're similar to the album version in in that it's like short and. It almost I think we've talked about this in an earlier episode about an 89 or even 90 show that it was like, it just seems like kind of a pointless song to play without a jam, you know? It's just like yeah. a five-minute 5, five minute song with like some goofy shit going on and then it's like, and then it's over, especially with the abrupt, abrupt stop. But um, yeah, I agree. There's like those weird sound effects at the beginning, which I think maybe are instruments. It's weird, right? There's, there's a lot of weird stuff going on here, but I agree. And it has obviously evolved into, like you said, live live masterpiece um but yeah not not a great album song
1: yeah not for for sure i I mean thinking about it you know from that time period like if you were seeing the band a lot and maybe some people who were seeing the band a lot in you know 90 to 92 maybe can can chime in with us um it's i could see this just being like a bathroom song like, you know, oh, I know what they're going to do for the next, you know, three minutes. And they're, you know, I will say the lyrics are awesome. I I, I really like the lyrics to bathtub gin. There's some um, really interesting little puns in there. Like mm-hmm. the one that I always liked is uh, bread is tasting all the soup, which is like bre- the name Brett, but it could also be bread. Like you're mm-hmm. dipping, dipping the bread in the soup that it mm-hmm. would taste. There's some cool, like clever things like that, that I've always yeah. liked
0: yeah and it's like a cool story you know um which which doesn't doesn't often happen um all right so then we get into run like an antelope this is uh again similar to reba i think just like feels like a real real rager on the album version
1: yeah, just as with ReBA, it seems like they were able to put down on tape exactly what they do live. So like mm-hmm. I don't know if it was, but maybe this this is a track that they just got in the studio and did a run through of just like they would do it on stage. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's absolutely like quintessential fish and a great representation of what they what they've always done with it.
0: Do you think this is like um, maybe up to this point their most ambitious studio track? Just because it's like it's a little bit open, wide ranging. I mean, I guess like David Bowie is a little similar, um, but this feels like a little bit more experimental, even.
1: It's probably the one that comes the most unhinged first mm-hmm. um, if as far as ambition I think all the stuff on Junta is probably a little bit more ambitious fluffhead and whatnot but um, it's probably it's probably I think this and Reba. they seem like the first times that they got in the studio you know once again and just did what they do with it and put that down on tape instead of trying to like craft the perfect version of it um, and ignore any of the, the sort of jamming elements the interesting thing about this is if you look at the debuts of all these songs on this album this is the only one that they had been playing for a while because they debuted it, um, you know, in an early form in like 85. Um, and it was like a staple of their late 80s stage show at Nectars and stuff like that. Um, whereas pretty much all of the other material in the album debuted, I believe, in 89. So they were somewhat fresh songs uh, at the time that they recorded them.
0: Interesting. So that's, um, in time-wise, Fish.net has a great um, song history of this song. Um, the, from, you know, I think people know that that Tom and the dude um, are credited with the lyrics, but there's kind of an interesting theory um, about about this song and about Trey and his his first dead show um, or his his second dead show. Um, and anyway, I'll leave it there. But w- we can link to it if people want to. L- have you have you read through that before?
1: I, I yes, I did, and I uh, listened again, and I do not believe I, I, I don't agree with that theory <laughs> at, at all. <laughs>
0: All right. We're going to link to it so people can (laughs) check it out. I wasn't sure because I was like, this is too, it seemed way too complicated um, for me to go back and listen to it, but I figured you had. Um, Man, this, this is one of the songs that I'm like most sad about its evolution to now. You know what I mean? Like when they, when they play it now, it it is rarely the experience that it was when I first started seeing fish in the mid nineties, but that's, that just happens.
1: Yeah. They still do the same thing that they did. It it lacks a little bit of intensity maybe because they've pretty much always done it the same way. Yeah. Um, probably I, I would put David Bowie in the same category. Like it's, Definitely. it's kind of lost. It's, you know, it's, it's lost a little bit. Um, but still, but still great and fun and, and, uh, you know, it, it does what it's supposed to do.
0: Yeah. Fair. And so then we get into lawn boy, which I think, um, I often forget that this is a a Trey and Tom song just because Paige sings it and it's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't, I would never like come up with it as like a top 20 songs that I can recall that Tom having written the lyrics. But, um, but actually if you look at the lyrics, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense.
1: It, it does i think where it's an oddity to me is like musically it's so much different than anything else they've mm-hmm. ever done to the point where it's kind of sounds like a novelty song mm-hmm. like i wouldn't be have been surprised to have heard ween write this song um yep. or for it to be like a weird al parody of of something else it's kind yep. of like <laughs> sending up an entire genre in the lyrics while not necessarily satirical or very very goofy um but yeah and, and i still even though it's like you know Pretty much all the same, of course, with the exception of the Baker's Dozen version. Um, I'll never put, you know, turn my nose up at uh, at here in Lawn Boy Live.
0: Yeah, and and there were two separate versions: um, one on the original release and one on the the Electra release. And I'm not sure which one I heard first. Probably the Electra release, which I guess is a lot slower.
1: Yeah, it's the same thing. They just mastered it slower on the Electra release. Um, okay, so it's it gives it a slightly different feel. But the other thing about this is it it's actually kind of like it's a throwback to like a sound of its time like I don't think Trey is using his Languedoc guitar it's it's almost kind of like a mm. jazzy acoustic tar- guitar so I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he was using some other kind of like arch top guitar or something like that um, in the studio on this but it sounds a lot like the guitar jazz records of that period like mm. late 80s early 90s and like this will sound like I'm poo-pooing it a little bit but I'm not it's just kind of to set the the tone it it kind of makes me feel like i'm sitting in the dentist chair when mm, i hear mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. it's like you know back back in the day i don't think it's the same but it was like you know um pat metheny and kenny g and all that yeah. kind of stuff that you would <laughs> hear all the time totally, yeah. it's 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 and it, even the way it's mixed with a lot of like real heavy digital reverb and stuff it's it it even evokes uh, a time and place for those of us that were alive and cognizant then
0: yeah, like a it's like a hollow body jazz guitar right. with some very specific effects, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and as far as Tom lyrics, um, this like there there aren't a lot of lyrics, and and people have heard Paige sing them a thousand times, but the the just like the creativity of this song that's just about like <laughs> basically smelling grass is. Pretty amazing. And getting overwhelmed by olfactory hues is just so perfect. What a great closing line to a fish song. So good job, Tom. Um, Okay, so ending with Bouncing Around the Room... And I know there's, well, we I think we've talked on this show before, and maybe I, maybe on Under the Scales, Tom has said that I think he and Trey believe that this is like the best song they ever wrote, even even to this day, I think, um, or at least at, up to some point. Um, what do you how do what do you think about that?
1: You know, it's like, could you call this like Fish's Touch of Gray, like not in terms of like the the scale that it reached as a single or anything like that, but just like it te- seems to be the one song that like long time fans get annoyed at and brand new fans are super, super excited about. Cause they've heard it, <laughs> I guess because it's the opener on a live one. I mean, it was one of the fish first fish songs I heard because of that. Um, I just had a coworker ask me about like, you know, I want to get into fish. What should I listen to? And I said, listen to a live one. And then immediately was thinking about like, all right, what's the first thing he's going to hear. It's going to be bouncing around the room. And what kind of yeah. tone does that set? Um, I don't mind it. I do agree that it's a great, composition. I get why, you know, people don't always love hearing it live. Um, but I, I do think it's a really, really cool song. And as far as the composition, it always makes me think of that um, thing that Trey and Dave Matthews did where they went to Africa and they were teaching orchestra Baobab how to play bouncing around the room because the rhythm is so close to um, these sort of like West African rhythms that um, they were trying to, to learn about. Mm-hmm yeah
0: and the, the the music and the um on the last uh lyrics episode on the scales we talked about the lyrics and the music of gaiuti and how they just like feed off each other and complement each other so well i think this is another example of that it just it feels like the the music is reflecting the lyrics you know in terms of the yeah. the the actual part of the bouncing around the room um piece and this is i mean i think it's one of the top six the sixth most Played fish song right so that's like another reason why people aren't necessarily that excited to hear it given that you can hear it like and there was a point where you could hear it you know at almost any show you went to yeah. it, with the right with yeah. the right rotation right yeah but um, the again yeah the lyrics and the, the combo are, are just really good but um, this is it's an interesting closing track and it's also we didn't I didn't mention like lawn boy <laughs> is a really interesting title track as well <laughs>
1: Yeah, which is I think that's a very fishy kind of thing to like name it after the real oddball track. Um mm-hmm. they kinda of did the same thing with Big Boat, right? That was like a um line from the song Friends, Fishman's song, which is yep. very underplayed if you ask me. But um the uh <laughs> bouncing around the room, like it's a it's a really strange choice for a closing track on the album. You've got, um, you know, Scrumming Coil, which we a lot of us associate with being kind of an ending song and that opens the album. So I would like, I would probably resequence this just a little bit and maybe put Bouncing Around the Room somewhere in the middle of the record. Um, I actually think like, I think Lawn Boy is a way better closing track uh, mm. than Bouncing Around the Room. And the other thing is it to, to to make it the closing track, they added that strange ending to it which like it's like kinda comes out of nowhere and it's a little mm-hmm. cheesy and I uh, every time I listen to it I'm like, oh this is a great song and then they do that. It's like oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like
0: <laughs> Well so they they did the goof the goofball song naming on several albums, right? I mean, not not goofball, um oddball, I guess you yeah. said. Or, or the not not the one that you would expect. I think Round Room to me is a similar Case, Yeah. I mean, that that album has Pebbles and Marbles and 46 Days and Seven Below. And I mean, you know, a lot of amazing... And Round Room is not a bad song, but it's a funny one to name an album after. Um, But, you know, it happens. Um, I also was just thinking, actually, while we were talking about this, that it seems like maybe Big Boat and Picture of Nectar are the only... and, And Junta are the only albums that were named after song like not named after songs um that were on the uh no
1: picture nectar is named after cavern no i know but it's not the
0: song name oh oh right right right. so lawn boy rift actually hoist is the same yeah but hoist doesn't really have any any reference no it doesn't at all um and i guess you know it's just interesting that they they went in a very specific direction it seemed like a lot of those albums are named i don't know that seems rather odd to me but maybe it's more common than i think yeah, that the album is is named after a track because like some of the great like album you know it, it was like an an art or a challenge or whatever to name your album something crazy or interesting that that doesn't ha- necessarily have the name of a of a track from the album.
1: Yeah, I, I think that was like a very seventies album oriented rock kind of thing about like mm-hmm. you know naming the the album after like the big song or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of great albums that have nothing to do with the the tracks. But anyway, we, that's a dig- digression that doesn't make any sense and is not relevant to you, our listeners. So thank you for <laughs> bearing with that. But uh, Big Boat is a funny album name and <laughs> they should play that, that track more, um, which is not called Big Boat. It's called Friends. And Matt and I are appreciative of all of our friends who have joined us today for listening to Lawn Boy. Any last words on Lawn Boy, Matt?
1: No, you know, once again, it's like, if I, I think of it as, like, this huge building block in terms of their career, and I don't often go back to these and listen to them in terms of, like, self-contained albums. Um, this one in particular, like, because it's really just, like, about the songs that are on it and the place that they would later have in Fish's history and, like... Every single one of these tracks has been, even though they've had some gaps in how frequently they've been played, every single one of them has been a staple of their repertoire ever since then. There's no drop off tracks at all. There's nothing that, like, they never played live or they played live once and got frustrated and didn't do it again. And from, you know, pretty much every other album after this, there, there, you have those tracks, um, but these tracks are also essential, also amazing, um, that it's really just a, a critical part of their their development in their catalog.
0: Yeah. Well said. I can't, I can't really add anything to that. So I'm going to leave it there. And I want to just say to people listening, thank you for joining us. Let us know if you like this backtracking series. We're going to go, we're going to go forward and we are going to bring you another one of these soon. And we will have a bunch more um, episodes coming up. So if you like what you hear, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple podcasts. If you haven't, and maybe there's an Apple podcast app now on your desktop or something. I don't know. It's all, it's all very confusing.
1: Is that true, Matt? there is it's just one more way to listen to us
0: yeah one more way to listen to us and you can listen to us at osirispod.com so thanks everybody for listening send us thoughts feedback and questions as always and uh, keep on rocking
1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got
1: a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose,
0: and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast.